team, family, squadron, we have a super special episode of the Landing Pad planned today. Special guest from outside the grit. We've got a Sunday special. You've heard of him. You know him. We're all familiar with the gospel of Casey at this point. We've got Casey Baugh, entrepreneur, one of the partners at Sandlot. And for right now, let's buckle in for yet another episode of the Landing Pad. well here's a voice coming at you that you didn't expect uh this is me john uh, kick Garth, gave Garth the boot from the podcast today. Right before we left, he said, make us proud. Uh, make the landing pad proud. So if this episode get, goes viral, I'm taking the credit for it. It's not because of the big name Casey Ball. It's because here we are. We're super excited to be here. Casey, thanks so much for taking no, the time. I'm really excited. This long time coming. For sure. We just had, we had to get a setup worthy of Casey coming in here. We couldn't uh, no. bring him into the lab. Chip bags, no creative things going on. Yeah, bringing Casey into the closet didn't make sense. So no, we did wait no. until we're here. Shout out again, the Rookery, uh, to bring Casey in. Again, we're excited to have you. Huge. Well, getting right into it, we don't want to take a whole ton of time, but what should the listeners know about Casey? Family, history door-to-door, what you're doing day-to-day. What should the Landing Pad listeners know about you? Um, yeah, so 40 years old. I've got five kids. Um, 14 is the oldest one is the youngest so we're like full-blown parenthood right now yeah like as thick as you can get um which we love it's like our favorite thing in the world my career i was in door-to-door sales for 17 years um i transitioned out three years ago and kind of transitioned into professionally investing full-time um but i you know, I don't know if there's a bigger advocate of door-to-door sales in the world than myself. I mean, it literally changed my life. And so, you know, I have like this place in my heart for everybody that is pursuing that career and kind of the opportunities and who you become from doing just that hard job, you know, and it's, especially in 2023, I think it gets more um, exaggerated as time goes on, as far as just work that requires all of you and that you can't hide like you're you're so exposed you either you're either doing it or you're not and if you're doing it you get all the accolades it's like a complete meritocracy and you just see you know people rise from one station to another station just because of their grit and hustle like it you know for me it was the american dream and so you know anytime that i can you know tell my story or add value or do anything to people that are in that space. It, you know, makes me really happy because it was life changing for me. You love to see it. 17 years in the trenches. If that's not a unique perspective, I don't know what is you, uh, you paid the dues. You know, it, it was 17 years, but it wasn't 17 random years at a bunch of different places. It was like most of them at one company. And, you know, we, I, I started, I, I was at a small company for three years and they went bankrupt, um, in 2007. And then I, like completely lucked out and landed at 
Apex at the time, which turned into Vivint, and they just raised money from Goldman Sachs at a $50 million valuation. And so I was kind of, I had a front row seat as a 24-year-old, you know, ignorant kid um, to see a company go from a $50 million company to, I think when, when I transitioned out, there was like a total enterprise value of $13 billion between Vivint and Vivint mm-hmm. Solar. And so it was just like, all the things that you would learn that I had no business learning and all the business experiences that I got that really I wouldn't have got anywhere else. So it was just, it was, you know, I, I see God in this process so much as just kind of, you know, some bigger plan than myself. Cause I, I don't know how I ended up there and, and I loved it. You know, some of my best friends still work there. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a great experience for me. Unreal. Yeah, we actually are going to touch on a lot, you know, Casey and Easton's going to touch on this a little bit, but we've heard you speak so many different times and we've spoken about what you just touched on your career, you know, 17 years in door to door, so much of it at Vivint was planted. And we're going to ask you more on that. You know, the whole experience with your first company going uh, bankrupt, we're going to touch on that yep. a little bit and ask about that. But, uh, and Easton, you wanted to just speak a little bit about not just the impact that Casey's had on Vivint, but also the grit, which I don't even know if Casey knows how big of an impact he's had. Well, I think it's just it's the true measure of, of real impact. There's impact and there's influence. I think influence is super widespread and it's a little shallower. And impact is usually a, a little bit more specified, but it goes extremely deep. And I think Casey indirectly has had both. I think the ultimate measure of impact is the butterfly effect at the end of the day good that you're doing that you didn't even know that you were doing and through the impact you've had on john john's been able to impact the reps at the grid and the reps of the grid have been able to impact their reps and families and so on and so forth so to hear it straight from the horse's mouth like you said is, is long overdue the point that i wanted to make is whether whether i sit down at the rep and they've met with other companies or i get into a neighborhood and it's been knocked by other companies my goal is always to be significantly different and uh i know you've been on quite a few podcasts you probably do about one of these a week and so our goal here is uh, we, we want to pry a little bit into maybe stuff that doesn't get touched on as often as others. So it. we want to we want to get in some uncharted waters. Just a couple of rapid fire questions so that the guests could get a flavor for you. And these are just short answer. It doesn't have to be super long. I'm going to fly through these. Biggest lesson you ever learned from a rep? Um, you know, one of it could be a cautionary tale. You know, some of the some of the greatest reps that I ever worked with, you know, guys that were top of the world, you know, made the most money in the company that either, you know, got onto drugs and um, ended up kind of derailing a career or doing something that's dishonest and, you know, losing that opportunity when they had everything at their fingertips. Um, and, and so it's kind of, you know, that cautionary tale of you, you have kind of one reputation and you get, you know, you spend your whole life building it and you can wreck it in an instant. And so I think, you know, that's kind of the, you know, less optimistic, exciting answer is just your consequences matter and you, you, you need to like take full accountability for your actions. And, and also like what got you to the top doesn't keep you at the top. You know, the, there's so mm. many people that just rise to the top and then somehow they lose focus and they don't keep it. And so, you know, I, I've got a lot of those examples, um, you know, some positive things that you learn from reps. I remember I had a kid that worked for me um, one summer and um, he, you know, struggled the entire summer, got halfway through the summer. And, you know, it was kind of time to either go home or um, mm-hmm. get going. 
and I sat down with him and it wasn't lack of effort. It just didn't click for him. And so we're having this, you know, interview and it was kind of decided, Hey, you know, I think it's time to cut, cut strings and go home. And he goes and, you know, he said, he's going to call his dad and he comes back the next day and he completely different, like countenance. And I'm like, Hey, what's up? And he, and he basically just said, Hey, I called my dad and my dad told me I didn't raise a quitter. You need to finish the summer. And he squares up his shoulders, goes and crushes that next two months, never sold again. But I see him seven years later and he, he kind of comes and flags me and he's like running this company, literally running their entire sales. And he's like, that summer changed my life. And that decision point of do I quit or do I keep going and overcoming? And, you know, you guys see countless of those examples every single year. And so, you know, those are two examples of like just, you know, number one is what what gets you to the top doesn't keep you there. You you know you have to keep habits of excellence and you always have to keep striving. And then the second one is like just fulfilling on your commitments and being true to yourself um, and that integrity principle of not quitting. It's crazy how it just compounds into the next aspects of your life and and vice versa. Like when you get in the habit of cutting something short. Uh, how you do anything is how you do everything. And you just see it, see those ripple effects kind of five, 10, 15 years down the road. And I have the luxury of like being like five, 10 or 15 years down the road now, you know, that wasn't <laughs> always the case. I always felt like I was the young guy in the industry. And, you know, now you, I'm 40 and I can look back and I can see the differences in paths that people chose and where it led them, you know, whether they're married or divorced, you know, whether they're well off financially or whether they're in the exact same spot they were at 15 years ago, whether they're in good physical shape or whether they're 40 pounds overweight. And it's like choices, it's little choices on a daily basis. So that, I, I don't know why I'm kind of obsessed with that stuff, but that stuff, I just, you know, it intrigues me that human behavior stuff and what it leads to. I think your answers to the question, that's one thing I'm so excited about, being a listener, uh, being a disciple, as Easton calls me, of, of, of you, Casey, that's right. is, is it's so interesting. The question was, what was your biggest lesson or some of the biggest lessons? And immediately, you know, you think of all these incredibly successful people, you know, trust is earned uh, in drips and loss in buckets who had it, who had a ton of success and then made decisions that left, led them down a path where they didn't want to be. Yep. And that's the first thing where it's like, that's way interesting. You know, as you, like you said, have a 17 year in the door to door industry. That's one of the first things of like lessons is like of things not to do. And, you know, a cautionary tells. Yep. The other thing that you said, and I totally agree with you, which is I think everybody should do a summer of door to door sales, you know, and whether it's one summer, they did it. They never do it again. Like the, like the guy that you talked about, or, you know, it ends up being their career for most people. It's not going to be, but the lessons that you learn, most people say so, now. So I I've taught, this is my fourth year teaching up at BYU, teaching yeah. entrepreneurship and we'll do this big class. There's probably four or 500 people. It's an, you know, EIN one one So it's yep. an entry level class. But then after the class, they do what's called group mentoring. And so you'll have anywhere between 30 or 50 students that want like extra, you know, extra time. Yeah. And so we'll go in there and there's this kid and he's, you know, obviously a sharp kid. He's going to the class, then coming to the class after the class. And he basically just said, Hey, you know, I know you're in the door door industry. Um, <clears throat> that's not going to be my career. I'm going into engineering. I've got a friend who's trying to recruit me to go do it. 
you know, what would your feedback be to somebody that isn't going to be in that industry, but, you know, could do it for a year. And and I said, honestly, if I ran this school and if I ran every school that a mandatory internship of selling door to door would be required in any business program. And, and I think he was kind of surprised. And I just said, it is the foundational skill set for entrepreneurship. You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to lead. You have to be able to deal with adversity. And, and, and all sales is, is a transference of feeling or emotion. And if, if you want to be successful building a business, um, you have to be able to persuade. And if you don't, you're, you're not going to be effective. You're going to get bogged down. And, and so that skill set, whether you do it one summer or 10 summers, you know, it will serve you, you know, going forward if you do it the right way there's one thing about doing a summer and there's For a significantly sure. difference in like sure. just being there physically and you know it's not the same thing for sure and 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 corbin church i think says the same things he says i'm going to say the two you know the two bad words at byu summer sells right and and i think he says a similar thing where i totally agree and not just in entrepreneurship or business, but you be a doctor, you're going to be with people. You need to be able to convince them to do this or that. Like it sells, it sells, it sells, it sells everything, you Stay, know, staying married, you staying know what I married. mean? Like on a daily basis, you're All like trying to persuade your spouse, why you're a good spouse and why you're doing a good job and totally. why she's doing a good job and vice versa, you know? And so it's like communication is key in every relationship. And when it breaks down, you can feel it. You know, all of us have been in situations where people aren't great communicators and they have so much substance, but they can't deliver it, you know, because they can't communicate properly. Totally. And over the course of your 17-year career, I'm sure there were thousands of teams, hundreds, hundreds of teams, thousands of reps. Is there a team, a market, a year that's particularly close to your heart and why? I mean, for me personally, the I, I managed two teams. I managed a team in Austin um, that we were all first year reps. And so no one had ever sold. No, one guy had sold one summer and he was 19 and he'd sold like 30 accounts. You managed and you had never yeah, sold? It was my first year at Bivin, <laughs> you know, and so we went out, did ton of preseason, you know, Todd and Alex, uh, the owners, they actually said, hey, you can't manage unless you guys do 200 preseason, you do 50 personally. So I went out and I just killed myself in the preseason to be ready. And we did a lot of like interviews with the top teams before we went out. So we had kind of these mental models, but you'd never done it. And I still remember like going out with that team. And, you know, I had this first year rep, a kid named Mike Schreiner. I still remember just telling them, hey, Mike, I need you to be a manager this year even though you've never sold before and you're 21 and watching him just rise to the occasion and be a leader all summer. And he was a car, car group driver and another kid named Nick Ellison. Hey, I need, I need, I need you to step up and be a manager and all these young guys that just by asking them, Hey, you need to be a leader this year, even though you're not ready and they become ready. And it, it just taught me this principle that like, when, you know, the opportunity arises, people step up and it's our job as a leader to like believe in people more than they believe in themselves. And so that, that first summer we were a top 10 team, you know, um, did over 3000 accounts and it was kind of a life-changing financial summer and also kind of put me on the map at apex. And then the next summer we had kind of one of the top teams in the company, um, built on the previous one. It was the last summer that I ever managed. So those two summers were so special. What was particularly interesting with uh, that next summer was it was like the heart of the financial collapse. 
And so oh, wait, you're, oh, you're, nine. you're 2009 and it mm-hmm. was like heavy gas mm-hmm. prices were expensive. Unemployment was really high, tons of foreclosures. And in that business, you had to get, somebody had to pass credit. <coughs> so you just had one, like people, there was kind of this feeling of pessimism, you know, and, and fear in the market. And then second, like there was just less qualified homeowners to purchase. And so I still remember we got together before the summer and, and we just said, Hey, we just have to knock more doors. And so the standard time in the company was two o'clock and we just set our time for one o'clock. And on Fridays we were noon when everybody else was two. And we just did the math. We said, we've got 45 people. If we get one more hour a day, that's going to be five to seven sales a day on Fridays. That's going to be 12 more sales. And over the course of a hundred days, that turns into a big number. And it, and it equated to that number. We just, we, we kind of said, we're going to out, um, a word out input the process. You know, if our closing ratios go down, we're still going to sell more sales because we're just going to have higher inputs. And so, yeah, it was, you know, a big lesson for me. And like, it doesn't matter what the economy is like the economy is what is between your ears. You know, you can go put a plan together to go dominate in a down economy. And for me, my entire career was made because we excelled in a, in a bad economy. And so it was a lesson for me in the recession that that's where you can actually get a lot of market share. If you have like the right psychology and you, you attack it properly. Getting out of like the more rapid fire questions, which is obviously huge transitioning more into kind of the weeds of the door to door career. Obviously you've already mentioned that you did it for 17 years as a principle of leadership. You mentioned one of the responsibilities of a leader is to believe in others more than they're capable of believing in themselves. What's a principle that you've learned in the last five, 10 years that you wish you would have known that first summer in Austin? Oh man, that's the, the, there's so many of them, you know, the, the stuff, the, the stuff that I learned that helped me the most, um, when I was there that I think gave me the advantage was to treat it professionally. And I, I was early in that, like no one treated it professionally. It was this summer to summer thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting down with Todd and Todd, you know, showed me a vision of why this could be a profession. And I think the nature of me losing everything in the company going bankrupt and then also the economy just tanking and then to have this vision of, hey, you could actually get way ahead in this profession. I didn't have to look to the right or to the left anymore. And I kind of committed this is what I'm doing professionally. And that made all the difference for me. You know, that that certainty and that just full commitment allowed me to just blow past a lot of people that, you know, were just as good or better than me, but they didn't commit. They, they didn't fully commit. Um, over the last couple of years, I think the, the big lesson or the cautionary tale that I've seen is, you know, I worked with over a hundred thousand reps. We paid out 125 to 150 million of sales commissions a year. And to see people that made a tremendous amount of money that have nothing to show for it, you know, 15, 20 years later. Um, and it's not like they, they just went buck wild. It's just, they, they weren't deliberate in building wealth. And so for me, that's a passion project that if I could go back, that would have been like class number one, um, mandatory indoctrination on you will invest every nickel of spare money that you have because, compounding will make you wealthy. If you just put it to work at 21, 22, 23, and forget about it, 
you know, and back then it was, you were kind of less involved in that. It was, you know, people kind of made their own decisions and, you know, if you would have put money to work in 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, sure. invest Thir- in anything. 13-year bull market. No, invest in anything. Yeah. Close buy your stocks, eyes. Buy, buy any real estate, buy anything, and you would have you would have made two to three extra money just, like, falling into it, you know? So, anyway, that, that that's probably what I would have changed. If I, you know, it, it was something I always did personally. Um, and so I think the people closest to me and my managers closest to me, you know, we had that a part of our culture, but I could have been more vocal about helping others. Yeah. About helping others. It's just, it's like, it's the difference between, you know, you make different decisions when you're financially free than when you're, when you're like, which is what you do. You know what I mean? Which is what you do now. I mean, that's your profession now. And And it's our passion project. Like our whole purpose is to create generational wealth for families. You know, that's what lights us up. That's what fires us up. And so you, you know, to be able to help people one, you know, with the decision-making process and two access is kind of what we do full time now. Um, but I was doing it back then. I was just doing it personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, Casey, you talked about this and I want to go back to it. I think something you guys did so differently at Vivint is treat it. And it came from Todd is what it sounds like, at least for you, it did like a career, uh, not like a, you know, launching pad, but truly like a landing pad. Look, I can make this my thing. And you saw that at Vivint where so many guys made their careers and were all in on that where yep. so many people, especially now with stigmas or this or that. They don't want to be the summer sales bro. They don't want to be the summer sales gal. They just want to do it and get out. Uh, I want to go back to Casey. So you were working for a different company that went bankrupt, went belly up. Yep. I wanted. I want to hear what was that like. That's got to be one of uh, the experiences in your life where you remember where you were when you found oh, out yeah. backends weren't getting paid. Like what yep. did that? Because I assume you recruited your friends and family. And you had probably, in some cases at least, like brought people into this company. Hey, look, this is going to be a great option. And then all of a sudden, you're looking at okay, they're not going to pay us, a, you know, a significant amount of money that they owed you. What did that look like? What did that feel like? And then how did you use that to propel you, and 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 really make that a, a huge win for you and your people? No, it's one of like my proudest moments in life. You know, I, I learned so much of myself through navigating that crisis and. Um, you know, we, we get to the end of the summer. I I think if there's ever been a time in my life where it would have been easy to be a victim, that would have been the time because we actually did everything right. We were the top team in the company. We were, I think the top region in the company. We'd recruited a bunch of people. We'd worked hard. Crushed it. Yeah. We, we'd done every, like it was ready to spike the football at the end of the summer. And even I remember going to our banquet and there was no signs that, you know, there was smoke and I remember going to the owner of the company and he, he asked me for a hundred grand. I'd already given him, I think two or 300 grand and he just stole it from me. He literally like, I wrote him a hundred grand, never made a payment and just kept it. And so like, it was a point in my life where I'm like, you know, complete like violation of trust. Um, but I was able to somehow just like, put my blinders on and focus on what needed to be done. And I'm, I'm the biggest believer that life is happening for us. It's not happening to us. And that that had to happen. I never would have ended up at apex or Vivint. Like I liked where I was at. We had great culture. We had great friends. 
we were all doing it, you know, and um, so it had to happen. And I was better with my money in the future. You know, I, I, even if I did trust people, I would actually like go through the proper trust steps and of yeah, getting good paperwork and getting good documentation and managing my downside. And so those lessons, you know, it was tuition, but it was like the exact tuition that I needed at the right time. I, to have that lesson at 24 instead of 37 for sure is the difference between like keeping your you know wealth and losing everything late when you don't have time on your side. So yeah, but it, it was so hard. It was complete chaos. One of my good, good buddies um, recruited me into the industry and he ended up going to a competitor company called Pinnacle. And I went to Apex and it was kind of the, the severing of a, a friendship of a kid that I'd known since I was 12 years old. You know, which to this day, it's super sad, you know, that like that, but it was kind of like take a family and cut it down the middle and then you just have to go figure it out on your own. It's brutal. It, yeah. It, it was the hunger games a little bit. Sure. I mean, it was wild. <laughs> kind of feels like it from time to time, doesn't it? So my next question is in the process of switching companies, going from one place where it was like very clearly things didn't go the way that you had anticipated what was the process of learning to trust again? And like, how has not just overcoming the early setback, but how has that experience helped frame the approach to the rest of your career in door to door? Um, I mean, again, I lucked out, you know, I, I, I met Todd, I met Alex and there was just something I, I always trusted them from the second I met him, I trusted them and, you know, and they never violated that trust that, that, you know, to this day, you know, if I were to say, Hey, people in my life that, you'd put on your wheel, you know, those are two guys that I wouldn't. And, and that, that, that's crazy after 15, 16, 17 years that that's the case, but it just is, you know, they, they were, you know, I can't think of better mentors that I was able to like have a front row seat and learn how to do business than these guys. They were just, yeah, they were, they were phenomenal both personally and professionally. And, you know, it's to, to this day, it's one of the gifts of my life to be able to have, you know, people 10 or 15 years older that I could look at and say, that's what I want to be when I grow up, you know, and it, it was a model or it was an example, you know, that I was able to draft off of and follow. And there was hard times along the way where, you know, if you don't have a champion in an organization that cares about you and it's willing to like have your back, you know, you, you get lost in the shuffle and they always had my back, you know, they, they always believed in me and supported in me. And so I think, you know, that I, I trusted them and they never violated that trust. And I think that's why the relationship lasted as long as it did. And it was a great lesson for me, like to never violate the trust of anybody that I work with. You know what I mean? To always be that friend that, you know, they, they know that I'm real and I'm authentic and I'm, you know, I am what I say I am. And, and I think that's kind of the, the life goal is that you show up, you know, if you show up, at worship or if you show up at the office that you're the same person, you're not a different person, you know, showing up to different places. So, and they, they were always like that, you know, they were the same people. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I think it's so easy to get caught up in so much of the periphery of door to door when at the end of the day, it really is a waste. In my opinion, it's not easy, but it's simple. It's a simple equation. You find who you want to hit your wagon to. You find people who you want to throw your hat in the ring with. You find your people who you want to ride with, and then you put your head down, you plant, and you go. And you don't bend, you don't break. Well, it's not like a clean story. You know, like if you're like sure. telling your little brother, you know, he's going into the door-to-door -door industry, there's not like this like clean, simple answer on like how to go navigate 
like that river with all the crocodiles and, sure. you know, and, and like two managers at the same company is a way different outcome for the same rep. You know what I mean? You could be at the right company with the wrong manager and have a terrible experience. And so you just, you really, you know, to this day, you know, I'm, if I'm sending somebody out into the industry, I've got friends at Vivint that, you know, it's like, Hey, go talk to him, then talk to him, then talk to him. And it's very like, Hey, this is who you need to work with. Cause I know they're going to get a quality experience. That's something. And if there's a part that we cut from this episode, I mean, talk about something that at its core, we believe in so much as we always say all the time, we don't, you know, we're not a pest control company. We don't bet on uh, this business or that. And you do for a short period of time, but what we will consistently bet on is people and it's getting the right people uh, to bet on, like Easton's saying, to throw your hat in the ring, to hit your wagon to. And I've heard you speak about it. Todd was that person for you. I, I remember at the Sandlot Summit, you said the same way that uh, Neilman with Breeze Airways, if it wasn't for that, you know, Sandlot wouldn't be there in the same vein. You know, Todd Peterson is that for you? Thousand percent. You know, I was, I was talking to him the other day. He's actually in Germany. He's, he got neck surgery and back surgery. And so I'm talking to him and you know, he's on painkillers and telling me about like the food and it's like just terrible, you know, hospital food in Germany. But you're, you know, now it's like, you're kind of like down the road a little bit where he's not in the industry anymore and I'm not in the industry anymore. And, you know, you're just reminiscing and it's like, you know, that was, that was such like a fun time. You like, you, you look back and it's almost like playing a sport where you're just like, man, we were in that battle together and we were fighting and we we're, you know, pursuing it and, you know, it, it kind of, it, it's the lesson that they're building a great business is an end in and of itself. We're always trying to get to the, you know, when I sell or when I do this, but you kind of got to like, be aware that like, this is the good stuff, the building of it and the building people and like the challenge and the struggle and the decisions, that's the good stuff. And just kind of soak it up when you're in it. I couldn't agree more. I think the arrival fallacy especially runs rampant in door-to-door. Oh, it's next summer. Oh, when I make a million in the summer, that's when I'll be happy. When I have a 1,000 reps is when I'll be happy. When I have this, when we go public, when there's an event, so on and so forth. And I think so much of the happiness, I always say this, is happiness is a total process-based emotion. It's not attached or associated with any destination or, or event. Going with that, I think a lot of people get in the door into door to door and they think the end objective is let me I'm trying to get off the doors. That's how I know I've made it yeah. quote unquote within the industry. How would you speak on on, on that outlook on door to door viewing it as in, in as my, soon as in I my get off personal the doors. experience, the people that were willing to be on the doors forever were the ones that ended up managing a lot of people in regions. You know, they were the ones who actually weren't but they weren't the ones who like wanted to be off. Interesting. Like they were the ones who just like created so much value for so many people that they worked their way off. You know what I mean? They just like, they grew so big that it wasn't an option to be on. Um, and so I think that that's been my experience with it is the ones who want it the most will never get it. And the ones who are just like about creating value are the ones that ended up, end up leading companies. And I've kind of seen that across the board at a lot of different companies now, you know, that's exactly as I look at a lot of you guys. Uh, I, I we introduce you. Uh, we had a call the other day with our leadership, and I asked Nick Elison. You did this at Sandlot, so I took a, a feather from your book from your hat. 
and asked Nick for an introduction about you, and he spoke about that, where your goal wasn't to get off of the doors. He remembers you driving in, he said, a Ram truck to Arizona every year, not leaving Arizona. Maybe it wasn't Arizona. Uh, not leaving until you did, you know, 10 accounts. And that wasn't, you know, just to do it. That was to get out, get in the trenches, show your people. Your goal was always, from what it sounds like, and a lot of people that have had as much success as you have had in the door-to-door space, wasn't to get off the doors. It was to provide as much value and impact. And inevitably, like you said, you'll eventually, you know, you'll have to because you won't have the choice of being on the doors anymore. You can add more value off. Yeah. And and I think there's times and seasons for everything. I think the longer that you go, you realize this job isn't for everybody forever. You know, and I think there was a point in my life where it's like, everybody should do this. You know, it's the greatest thing ever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, everything you look is, you know, and as you look back, you realize for some people, it's a one summer thing. For some people, it's through college. For other people, it's kind of a mini career. And then for others, they're going to go be Tom Brady or, you know. Um, Kobe Bryant or somebody that goes and they're in the league for 20 years, you know, but that's more of the exception than the rule, you know? Um, but what I can say is like the people that are exceptional, um, end up being exceptional the next place they go. I mean, we, we, that the company I'm with, I think we have seven or 800 investors that have written us a check for over 250,000 over the last two years. And like, so many of them have roots in that industry mm-hmm. and then have taken those learnings and gone out and build a business and have created, you know, tremendous wealth off of the, those skill sets, you know? And so I think it's just knowing that, you know, it's not for not when you're being excellent here, what you're becoming is the type of leader that is going to be excellent wherever you go. You just need to go adapt that to the next vehicle. It's really not about becoming excellent here or there. It's just about becoming excellent, period. Yep, and then excellence will follow you because that's the habits that you established to get there. This is a question I, I'm so interested to hear. I, in my opinion, Vivens, the golden standard of door-to-door, along the way over the last 17, 20 years, there's been people who maybe at one point or another match the trajectory uh, of the growth that, that an early Vivint was having, but obviously have fallen short in replicating what you and the rest of your team was able to build. What do you think the most common misstep is for companies or programs or leaders that are trying to replicate? I don't, what I, don't, I, I, I don't do? think it's a vivid thing. I think it's like a human nature thing. Like you think of a first year rep and the way that they kill themselves to get the skills, to be able to, you know, be top 20% or even top 1%, you know, the, these exceptional. But once you get there, you know, you have it. And unless you have like that next thing of I'm going to go manage or I'm going to go do this or I'm, then you see those people lose focus because like that, that vision of kind of what's next and that drive, it just takes exceptional effort. You think about Olympic athletes, you think about anybody that is on Broadway, you think about, you know, professional actors, you think about professional athletes. It's like, there's a level of sacrifice that it takes to be top 1% in any profession that, you know, if you don't keep it up, you lose it. And so, you know, when I, the talent is at every company, you know, uh, I, I do think company matters a lot. And the thing that Vivint I think has been better than anybody else is programmatically and systematically knowing that this is core to our business and we're going to invest in it. And so they just invest in their sales program and make it really special. And that's why it's done as well as it is. 
And that's why it continues to do it. You know, as long as they keep that culture in place, it'll continue to grow. And the second that they don't, it'll, it'll leave. You know what I mean? And so it, it's important to kind of put that number one. But yeah, the guys who I've seen excel at Vivint, it's the same principles of guys that I've seen you, John, and different people in the industry excel. It's that they have a standard of excellence that's not, hey, when I get there, then I'm done. It's like, I'm, I'm going to put these inputs in for a decade and see what that turns into. And that's just a different, different level of commitment than I want to be the top rep in my office, or I want to be the top region, or I want to be the top manager. Because when you check those boxes, like it's like, what's next? You know what I mean? And so people fall off or even earnings. You'll see people cap out at earning levels all the time. And I'm sure you guys see this all the time. You know, somebody, they just cap out at a hundred grand or they cap out at 300 grand or 500 grand. And that's like their plateau. And it's not that that's as much as you can make. It's that inside their ears, that's as much as they can make. And they do enough work to go get there. That's kind of their barometer of what they're worth. It, if I'm understanding right, I, I think I heard two huge things of what you just said. The first is a covey principle of putting first things first. It sounds like successful companies focus on the right things and they do first things first. And the second is is ritual you say all the time right rituals and habits so putting in processes and systems that allow people both as a company and then you have individuals that are bought into this of having rituals and habits that both collectively and as individuals everyone is trying to become better and it sounds like that's what you guys did at vivant uh which is you know not to speak again to vivant but as we look at you know in a lot of ways aspirational you have these a lot of you have had not only just huge impact on yourselves, but also friends, family, and that's what we try to be all about. But but I think like the company has to stay in business for a couple decades for that to happen. And I think that's the difference between most of these companies is if the company's around five years, you never get that compounding effect of human potential. 100%. And you think about how much better you are this year than three years ago. You just you 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 get better, you know, the skills just compound. But if you don't have a platform that's still in business to go harvest those, then that gets spread out into other industries. And I think the magic with Vivin is they've stayed in business and they've paid their reps consistently for a lot of years. So people stay like if, if I'm recruiting and my reps stay, then I'm going to grow the next year. If they don't stay, I've got to go rebuild and you can only do that so many times. And so I think company matters a lot in that equation. And you see great people just give up on the industry because the, they didn't partner with the right company. And that's the follow-up question of what you just said, right? I've heard you talk about this before, Casey, of the most successful people, whether it's those you worked with or those that you saw in the industry, planted. And you touched on that for a second. How have you seen that both with those you worked with and then others in others' industry where the grass isn't green, greener, it's greenest where you water it, they go and they plant and they make it happen where they are. I mean, people that just bounce and bounce and bounce like it's fool's gold. You know what I mean? It's truly cotton candy and you, you, you know, you see it in marriages, you see it in careers where people are always looking for the grass to be greener. And it, you know, it's that old adage that it's greener where you water it, mm -hmm. you know, and if, if you like dive into your situation and make it better, then you have options. Um, but if you, if you're always looking around, you know, and, and your reputation precedes you, like when I'm looking at a resume and I see somebody that's been at five companies in five years, mm -hmm. 
I can assume that that person, you know, I'm just a stop on the bus. But if somebody's been at one company for the last six years, you know, it's like, well, they'll probably, you know, be with us for six years if we do a good job at taking care of them. And so I, you know, ha- habits repeat themselves. I think there's no coincidence that when we talk about planting, it's the same person who's consistently talking about habits. It's the same it's the same notion of I'm going to be planted at this company. I'm going to be planted in who I am, the same guy that's showing up to worship and showing up at the office. I think the principle that's trying to be communicated is authenticity. Just being yeah, genuine. It's authenticity. It's consistency. It's one of, one of the greatest compliments I've ever been given by somebody that I respect is that I'm deliberate. And I think living a deliberate life is like you couldn't give me a better compliment because I just don't think you can – have an exceptional anything without striving for it. You know, you think about average and above average and excellent. By definition, it's different than everybody else. You have to have a different level of focus. You have a diff- you have to say no to a lot of good things to get the great things. Good truly is the enemy to great. And I think we get bogged down in the good. There's, you know, so many a, good a lot of good. So you say yes to it and you haven't kind of gone through and said, hey, I say yes to this and allow me to say no to other really good options. I think being planted, to me, it's not just a work thing. It's not just a being at a company thing. It's not just a loyalty thing. To me, planting is knowing what you stand for, knowing what you believe in, knowing your ethos, knowing your why, and then relentlessly building it out. I think it goes hand in hand with growth. I think it goes hand in hand with where some of the leaders and programs and companies can go wrong where a lot of consistency can can be compromised is just changing what you believe and and, and changing and, and adjusting, not in a healthy way, but in a way where you're looking for greener grass, you're looking for an easier road, you're looking for, for less resistance. Just in closing, one of the things that I've heard from you that I love the most is the secret, quote, the secret to life is giving. What experiences led you to this line of belief and how have you seen since you've started viewing life this way? How have you seen your life change for the better? You know, again, you go back to mentors and I had really good mentors that lived that way. So I think that's probably the first step to it. I had this crazy experience when I was 28. So I'd got equity in the company um, and the company sells to Blackstone for $2 billion. So all of a sudden, you know, I get this kind of Billion with a B. Windfall. Yeah, yeah, this windfall of capital at 28, you know, which kid, you know, seven kids in my family, small town, Logan, Utah, you know, that to me was like, I made it, you know, Mm -hmm. this is it. And so I remember I was reading this book by Clayton Christensen. It's called How Will You Measure Life? And I'm reading this book at the exact time when, you know, we're in the process of getting this windfall of capital. And he talks a lot about um, your deliberate strategy and then emergent opportunities, but he's going through values. And he gives a definition of values that I've, I've carried with me ever since. But he basically said, you value where you spend your time, where you spend your money, and where you spend your emotional energy. And so I actually like put a little spreadsheet together and I, I listed all of the stuff that you know I value, that I said that I valued. And then I put the kind of test next to them. How much time have I spent in this category? You know, physical fitness, my relationship with family, my relationship with God, financial independence, my relationship with my spouse, my relationship with my kids, giving back to the community. And I put this list of how much time do I actually spend on these values? How much money have I invested in these values? How much emotional energy am I given to them? And I had like these massive gaps in my life 
I had these blaring things where it's like no time, no emotional energy, no money. And so I'm like, I, I say I value these things. I obviously don't. And so it, it, it was this like humbling forcing function where one of them specifically, that was probably the most highlighted was I said that I valued my relationship with my family and also with my, um, like family I grew up in and my parents. And I was looking at it and I hadn't called them in a month. I hadn't invested a nickel in that relationship. Um, and emotional energy. I wasn't putting any time into it. I was focused on my career. And so I just made these commitments. I just said, you know, me and my dad, baseball was really special to us. And so anytime that I was in a city with a big baseball field, you know, I'm calling my dad, I'm buying him a flight. And we went and saw, you know, Yankees games and White Sox games and, and uh, Cubs games and Red Sox games. And we have like these special experiences, um, but it took real time out of my schedule. It took real capital. I'm the one who's paying for it. And it takes emotional energy. You guys have been on the road and it's like to go carve out a day and just say, I'm going to be all in on this. And, and, you know, with my family, like we, I, I just said, I'm going to pay for family reunions. And so we started planning kind of these epic family reunions for like the last 12 years. And Lake, we'd go to Lake Powell last we'd to, year. We'd go to Lake Powell. We'd go to Pirates Cove. We'd go to Victory Ranch. And they'd become like this thing where my, my family's really close. But I think a lot of it has to do with me saying, one, I'm going to actually carve out the time. I'm not going to be, you know, too busy that I'm going to put this first. I'm going to invest real dollars. Um, not ask anybody else to help. I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to, you know, show up like, and I'm going to be present. I'm not going to be on my phone and it's been the difference. And so like, even just those two things, when I look at, you know, my life today versus 12 years ago, it's definitely more integrated where I, you know, when I say that I do something, I try to live it. You know what I mean? If I, if I really value it, I'm, I'm putting the time, money and energy into it or trying to. And so anyway, that, that's kind of, so bringing it back to your question of like the secret of living is giving so much of it to me is saying that is a value of mine. Like when, when I think about spirituality, when I think about my relationship with God, um, I'm the closest to God when I'm growing, like when I'm fully engaged in something worthy of all of me, like that's when I'm in like flow state, when I just you know, that's whether it's playing golf, whether it's building a business, whether it's like solving like a, you know, challenging problem, going back to school, anything that's stretching me. And then the second is when I'm giving, like when I'm serving and I think about my church mission, I think about, you know, the door to door. I don't know of like an industry where that gives you the opportunity to serve more. Like you literally can give yourself to pe and change people's lives. And, and I, I, I remember I, I was joking around and I'm like, I feel like more spirituality from work than I do when I go to church. And I was joking, but I, I, what I didn't realize back then is I felt closer to God because it was getting all of me. It was completely challenging me and I was growing as a human and also that I was serving in a big way. I knew I was impacting lives. I knew I was, and honestly, like that's the reason I say yes to these podcasts and try to like show up and um, give, you know, my gifts is because I feel like that's that's a, a level. I would put this in my spiritual bucket of 
this is when I, you know, feel alive is and completely fulfilled is when I'm helping and when I'm growing, when I'm expanding, getting better. And, and that's, you know, where we want to close really Casey is, is putting your money where your mouth is your time where you're, you know, it's easy to say, I care about these things. And then as you look at it, like, what do I actually care about is what you said, where you put your time, your money and your emotional energy. You have done a a number of these podcasts. And so the first thing I want to say in closing is thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. And thanks for hosting it. I mean, you guys are doing the same thing, except on a bigger level is you just, you get a chance to serve people and add value in a way that, you know, anybody who's listening, it's a way to change their life. And so, you know, thank you guys for facilitating. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of your time and a lot of your emotional energy. You know what I mean? And you're fronting the capital to go do it. So it's really cool. Like I admire it. Well, we appreciate it. And like I said, it's not just this one. Uh, and this is a huge, uh, shameless plug. Listen to Casey, search him on Spotify, Casey Baugh. He's done a number of podcasts in the last year. Uh, I, I went to lunch this optometrist reached out to me and I did a podcast. He was like, Oh, thanks for doing that. And I was like, Oh dude, let's go get lunch. And he had never, he's not familiar with door to door. And so I sent him a bunch of your podcasts and he's like, Oh dude, I've listened to them three times. They're incredible. It fires me up. Oh dude. It makes me happy. And, and there's hundreds of those people. So truly take the time, listen to this podcast, re-listen to it, search all search Casey bond, Spotify. It'll pull up a list. Just go through them. Uh, Casey, thank you for being on. Thank you for the impact that you've had on on me personally, on the grit. When I went around this summer and traveled, I, I sent you this, right? We did the Tony Robbins priming. We did the three questions with the ton, 20 responses. So cool. And those are all, again, just things that, that you've done and that you've shared. A lot of people like to hoard their gold and their talents where you just have the exact opposite uh, abundance mindset. So thanks for doing that. Thanks for being you. And, and thanks again for being on. As as an abundant, intentional, honest, and and so 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 aware of a guest as we've ever had. So, no, thanks for thank having you for me, boys. Thank you. Appreciate you. As for this episode of the Landing Pad, we're out. Mission, let the birds fly. I get money, turn no vision through my third eye. Money, then they still watch me flip it like the spy guy. I'm like, bro, check out the ceiling, look at the blue sky. I took a tip, check, yeah, but we can sit on my neck. I don't regret, yeah, I'm better than I don't got a debt. You call for you want.